Well, in case you are just joining us, we have been on a, a journey and are about the midway point uh, that we're calling the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus in terms of his roadmap that he's laid out for us through his commandments. And we're looking at a, a particular aspect of that through the way of love around what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we'll carry on with what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's my privilege throughout this month to take a look at that first half of the great commandment of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We've spent two weeks on this already, and just let me give a quick recap of where we have come from. We started with the heart. We said that uh, in order to love God, we have to start with a broken and contrite heart. Because we don't naturally, we're not naturally inclined to love God. Our affections do not flow naturally toward the love of God until we get in touch with what I would call the moral abyss, <laughs> looking deep within ourselves and find out how far we have estrayed from our God and yet how he has pursued us in mercy to bring us back into relationship with himself. And we saw a window into that through the life of King David as he experienced his own moral collapse but experienced the mercy of God immediately on, on the edge of that as well. And then last week we looked at what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your soul? We ask the question, well, what's the soul? It's such an elusive concept. What is the soul? How do we understand that? And I said that we are all mysterious beings made up with personalities that are the unique souls that each one of us have. And the soul is that integrative element that permeates our being, that puts together our heart and mind and body into these persons, these immortal persons. And we each have a unique personality, this mysterious personality that has been put together. And we love God with all of our souls by being those unique persons that God has called us to be. But we can't become that until we are infused with a life that is not our own. And we call that life Zoe, the life of Christ that comes and penetrates our life. And when we yield our life to him, then we begin to have a personality of our own. It's only when we yield our life to him that the light of Christ shines through us and we become then our, our true selves. Today we move to the, the subject of loving the Lord our God with all of our mind. The Apostle Paul locates our transformation in our minds when he says that we are to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. It's the mind that needs to be different, to look at life from a different grid and perspective uh, in order to really understand what the mind of Christ is all about. And like the heart, the scripture starts with the assumption that we've got a lot of work to do. Learning to walk with Christ means to continuously bring our out-of-face thinking in line with the reality of God's revelation of himself in Christ. We need a complete transformation within. In other words, uh, God looks at us, us as reclamation projects, and he's in the salvage business. When I think of those images, I, I think of uh, an experience as I was growing up in Southern California. My sister probably remembers this. Uh, there was a canyon called Shoal Canyon. I grew up in the Los Angeles Basin in the East San Fernando Valley. And Shoal Canyon during my early years was a refuse depository. Every day the dump trucks came and they filled up this landfill. But in my 20s, I actually played golf on this very same site. The stinking landfill had been beautifully manicured into a green playground overlooking the San Fernando Valley. Uh, this place that was a refuse depository had been changed. It had been transformed. 
It had been recreated into a place of recreation. When Paul asserts the need for transformation of our minds, he uses language, I think, that is quite informative. We read in Romans 12 too, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I want you to look at the center of each of those two words, conform and transform. In English, the word form is the same, but in Greek, it is not. That the center of the word conform is the word schema in Greek. It's the word that we translate scheme in the English language. It has to do with the outward changeable form. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Paul says. In other words, don't simply uh, become like the rest of the world. Don't be like the chameleon that blends in with the flora and fauna so it cannot be seen. That's what it means to conform, just to kind of blend in with everything around us. Or as the Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But then Paul contrasts that with transformation, to be transformed in, in the renewal of our minds. And at the center of that word transform is another f- word for form. In the Greek language, it's the word morphe. I bet you have heard that word, haven't you? We use that in the English language to talk about computerized images morphing from a man's face to a, a woman's face. But this has to do with an inward change that is essential at the core of our, our nature. In fact, the actual word here is the word metamorphosis. We've heard that word, right? To change outwardly or schema is to be changed only externally. But metamorphosis is about becoming a new you. In fact, the image here is a biological one, isn't it? When you think of the caterpillar that uh, becomes the butterfly. The caterpillar spins a chrysalis, and then this life inside that chrysalis is formed and breaks forth into something entirely new. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that transformation uh, from within, that new you that is possible in Christ. Now, previously, I didn't describe the totality of uh, the transformation around the Soul Canyon because uh, I didn't tell you the whole story. I only played golf once on this transformed course. Why do you think that was? In fact, as I was uh, standing on the greens, you could kind of sense this ether coming up from within, this chemical cauldron that was uh, underneath your feet. You see, the landfill had been schematized. It had been superficially changed, but it had not morphed. They had not taken out the old garbage and and put in clean dirt. Well, I guess all analogies don't quite work, but uh, you know what I mean uh, in terms of that. If we are to learn to love God with all of our mind, it's helpful, I think, to get a glimpse into what a transformed mind looks like. In the Apostle Paul, we witnessed such an example. In fact, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he wrote, we have the mind of Christ. But what does the mind of Christ look like? I think Paul shows us through his life and writings what the mind of Christ looks like. As I've tried to study the Apostle Paul and his mindset and the way he looks at things, I think to myself, you know, I don't think we get him. The way he looks at life seems to be about 180 degrees out of phase with the way we tend to look at life. We don't quite get what Paul makes Paul tick because he says that he has learned a secret, a secret that we need to learn as well. So we read in 
these amazing words in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, if Paul were writing this letter to the Philippians, lying on a lounge chair on a white sand beach in Hawaii, we might be able to dismiss what he's saying. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. But what are Paul's circumstances in this moment? He's writing from prison, chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard 24-7. And he's saying, I've learned the secret of being content. So the question is, what was Paul's secret? Where did this contentment come from? He says that contentment really transcends every changing external circumstance. Let's go through this section in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through about 13, and note his language here. Paul, first of all, says, rejoice in the Lord. How much? Always. Again, I say rejoice. Jumping down to verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, not for everything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, thank God for whatever the circumstances are, present your requests to God. Verses 11 through 13, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives strength. Paul appears to be onto something here, doesn't he? Something that we would love to be able to grasp. What is the secret, the secret of contentment that Paul has grasped? Well, when I've tried to scour what Paul has said and where he's lived his life, He has learned something about the ever-present love of God to him immediately that transcends circumstance. So I want to look at this from three angles this morning, the things that Paul knew and that we can learn from. First of all, Paul knew that there were no barriers to God's love. He knew that there were no prison walls high enough to keep God's love out because the love of God is, is something that we experientially have as a part of our life. We can actually experience the love of God and transcend circumstances. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. You see, the Holy Spirit is none other than the presence of Jesus that comes to live in our life. If I were to ask the question, what makes a Christian? What defines a Christian? Pure and simply, a Christian is one who's invited the Spirit of Jesus to come and live in their life. And the Holy Spirit has shown up. Jesus promised that when he went to be with the Father, he would send another one in his place, the replacement spirit of himself. And so we read in John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give another counselor to you to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you fatherless. I will come to you, he says. I think the greatest fear that we have in this life is the fear of abandonment, the fear of being alone. And what Jesus says to us is, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is the way that uh, James Baxter described the love of God for us. He says, lovers have many ways of expressing their love, but especially two. 
One is the words, I love you, and the other is the kiss. God's word to me, reduced to its essence, is I love you. His spirit, as the mystics long ago observed, is his kiss. That sense of closeness, of the love of the spirit that comes to be within us. This week I had the opportunity to have lunch with one of our members that I wanted to meet with before I left the area. And I knew that she had had a, a very rough 2011, but I didn't know the half of it until I sat down with her across a lunch table. And I got permission to share her story. And she said that uh, she had lost a job, been fired from a job that uh, she had loved early in 2011. She got caught in one of those corporate power plays where the pride of people's hearts took over and she was the victim of that. But she went immediately from that job loss to her mother's bedside. And for the next four weeks, while her mother was in hospice, she sat next to her until she died. I asked her, what did her mother mean to her? And she said, well, she's the first one I would call with any news in my life. If that were not enough, in the midst of her mother dying, she found out that uh, a secret about their marriage uh, that uh, was going to make it impossible for that marriage to stay together. And after hearing that, I thought, well, what else could possibly happen in this person's life? Well, she told me the next thing that happened, which was she found out that she had a a defective valve in her heart, had to have open-heart surgery and have that valve repaired. Now, you might think with this string of events that I was sitting across the table from somebody who was going to be moaning about God in a Job-like state. Why, oh Lord, how long will you abandon me forever? I met exactly the opposite person. She said that the love of God came and penetrated her life in the midst of these difficulties in a way that became more real to her than it had ever been in her life. She sat there with a smile on her face. And everything about her body language said that she was content with God's love in her life in spite of all these things that had happened. That's what Paul's saying here that we can experience the love of God that goes beyond circumstance. The second thing that Paul knew was that he was the favored, graced child of God, and so are we. This is the message that the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that we are his beloved. What was the very first message that the Father spoke to his son when Jesus was launched into his public ministry? About his place in the Father's heart. See, Jesus presented himself for baptism to John the Baptist. We know that when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, he hears the Father's voice. The Scripture describes this in, in two different ways. The first way out of Mark's gospel is a personal word from the Father to the Son. It goes like this. You are my Son, chosen and marked by my love, the pride of my life. The Father wanted the Son to know the place he had in his heart as he was beginning his public ministry. But then Matthew's account changes a little bit, but importantly. Instead of speaking directly to the Son, the Father speaks to the crowd, as if he's a proud papa wanting everybody to know who this is. So Matthew puts it this way. This is my Son, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. You see, it's as if the father can't contain himself. You want to know who this is? 
I, I can't keep it to myself. I want you to know that this is my son. My guess is every parent here understands exactly what was going through the father's heart at that moment. We've all had those moments as parents, right? When we've wanted to say, that's my kid. Now, I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. In 2002, my daughter graduated from medical school. And it was a very proud moment, obviously, for Lily and me. And I warned my daughter ahead of time that I was going to make a fool of myself and her when that hood was placed on her neck. And uh, so when her name, Dr. Amy Hirsch, was announced, uh, I stood up, and as loud as my lungs could bellow, I said, way to go, Amy. (laughs) As I like to say, I paid a lot of money for that moment. (laughs) Of all the things that the Father would say to the Son at the beginning of his ministry, you are my Son, marked and chosen by my love, the pride of my life. Why, why these words? I think it was because the Father knew what was ahead for the Son, where his life would ultimately culminate and end. The major event would be taking place in a garden right before the cross. When Jesus would fall down on his knees before his Father and potentially have a doubt whether he was loved by his father. Father, Abba, if, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Wouldn't Jesus perhaps doubt in that moment of the love of the father for him? And he immediately needed to go all the way back to the beginning of his ministry to remind himself of who he was in the father's heart, that even the cross was going to be an expression of God's love for him. And it was the same message that Paul says that we can experience. That it wasn't only just the message of the Father to the Son, but it's the message that the Spirit speaks in our hearts as well. That we get to be enter into the same kind of relationship the Father and the Son share with each other. Because those of us who have the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of adoption, cry, Abba, Father. For God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God that we can know experientially, that we have been claimed by him. And so we can hear, just as Jesus heard, you are my child, chosen and marked by my love, the pride of my life. Just as an aside, I'm glad to return to this theme because it's the theme that's been the most important thing in my own Christian life, to come to understand myself as a beloved child of the Father not only was the most important discovery for me that I've ever made, but I discovered also that it's the absolute foundation of the Christian life. If we don't know ourselves as the beloved of God, then we'll always be trying to make up a deficit of something that is missing. But if we know that, that's the foundation upon which to build the entirety of our Christian life. The third thing that Paul knew was that the love of God through the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Christian community. We oftentimes think of the Holy Spirit as sort of an individual possession, in a sense. Comes to possess us individually. That's not the way the Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit. Normally, it's more the the spirit of the community. The love of God poured out into the community of, of faith. The love of God expressed through the people of God. The church as his body is nothing less than the heart of Jesus lived out in the presence of one another. 
I think we can almost get through anything in life if we know that we're loved, right? If we're carried by that love. Paul writes to the Philippians to let them know how much he appreciated their concern for him. He writes, it was good of you to share in my troubles. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. I was amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. Love may not change the circumstances, but it certainly alleviates and carries us in those circumstances. I recall with great pleasure one of those moments of being carried by this community of faith. Many of you know that in June of 2008, I had prostate cancer surgery that needed to be followed up by 37 radiation treatments. I was a bit apprehensive about what would happen in those radiation treatments. And so I was not shy about soliciting prayers from all of you and letting you know exactly when this was going to begin. So my first day when I was stretched out on that table and put in place so that the radiation would hit exactly the right spot, I was told that I had to stay in place and not move for eight minutes. And I began to visualize you praying for me. And then I got hijacked by my emotions. I all of a sudden had this giddy sense of joy. Do you know what giddiness does to your body? It causes you to move. I was told not to move. (laughs) And I had to say, calm down, Greg. Damper down that joy. (laughs) Because I visualized being prayed for it and carried by the people of God. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. The secret of Paul's contentment was that he was able to accept the circumstances of life as they were. He was able to tell the Philippians... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And that little phrase, with thanksgiving, makes all the difference in the world because he's simply saying, now, not that I pray, thank God for everything, but in everything, I can thank him. With thanksgiving changes the tone. When Catherine Marshall was wrestling with an extended bout of tuberculosis, she discovered a very important distinction It's a distinction I want you to leave you with. She says there's a huge difference between resignation and relinquishment. Accepting our circumstances does not mean to adopt an attitude of resignation or sort of a form of Christian fatalism. Scriptures does not say thank God for everything, but in everything. When John Claypool lost his 10-year-old daughter to leukemia, much of what was intended as consoling advice was really nothing more than Christian fatalism. He heard things like, we must not question God. We must not try to understand. We must not ask or inquire in the ways of God with people. The way out is to submit. We must silently and totally surrender. The implication here was, resign. Or as Catherine Marshall puts it, resignation lies down quietly in the dust of the universe from which God seems to have fled and the door of hope swing shut. No, we need to move from resignation to relinquishment. And that's the secret that Catherine Marshall discovered for 18 months. She languished with tuberculosis. She pleaded with God to change her circumstance, to to heal her. She kind of said, "I, I will serve you and if you will heal me. She wrote letters of confession to people in her life thinking maybe the 
illness was a result of some kind of judgment of God upon her. And then she said she got to this point of saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm beaten, finished. God, you decide what you want for me the rest of my life. I've discovered I want you more than my health. I want you more than my health. That's relinquishment. And when she got to that point, a healing process began in her life. I have a treasure that I keep in my files. It was a letter written to me by my mother during a period of intense anxiety and anguish over my uncertain future. And as a parent does, she observed my pain and she wrote these words. There's a special bond between a parent and child. When the child hurts, the parent hurts. We want the very best for our children, but we also must trust God for what is best. In other words, she was saying, I don't want you to just be happy. I want what God wants for you. And then she went on to write, first, God's time is not our time. We are asked to wait and pray and trust. If we humble ourselves before God and do not let pride get in the way, through it all we have God's great peace. It's truly a peace that passes all understanding. I felt it when I went into surgery four years ago. She had breast cancer surgery. And I've called upon him many times when fear welled up in my heart with a pain that I thought might be the return of the cancer. And then this line. He has never failed me. The word never underlined. Paul has brought us into a secret this morning. He's discovered the secret of a contented life which transcends the roller coaster circumstances of life. It's a life rooted in the ever-present love of God through the Holy Spirit within us and within the Christian community. That there are no barriers to this love that God has for us. That's why Paul can conclude the eighth chapter of Romans with these words. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's lens through which he viewed life is our window into the mind of Christ. If we are to love God with all of our mind, it means aligning our sight with the way Paul viewed life through what Christ has done. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning, that we would be gripped eternally by the love of God poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that we would know that we are yours, that your spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we are your children, that you have embraced us from within and claimed our hearts, and that we would know the, the love of the Christian community that we would be on the giving and receiving end of people carrying us in time of need and making our life much more agreeable in your presence, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.